Welcome to Radio BX, the podcast of the Building Energy Exchange, where we discuss sustainability and energy efficiency in the built environment. Radio BX is a natural extension of our core mission to foster dialogue among the entire community that impacts the performance of buildings. I'm your host, Yatza Frank, and I'll be talking with leaders who are driving positive change across the country and abroad. So stay engaged and join the conversation each month with some of the most compelling people in our field. Welcome. Good afternoon and happy Earth Day. I'm Richard Yancey, the Executive Director of the Building Energy Exchange, and we're delighted to have you join us today as we launch our new remote programming initiative. And before we start the program, I wanted to share just a few short remarks. Amidst the devastation and challenges that many are facing, our team at BX has been working to find meaningful ways to keep our community connected and informed. Our online platform, be-exchange.org, has grown into a vast depository of hundreds of case studies, event videos, tech primers, and more. And I invite you to explore them in your spare time. And later this spring, we will unveil a robust interactive e-learning platform offering accredited online courses to everyone and everywhere. And today, we are thrilled to launch Radio BX, a live interview and podcast series of insights from thought leaders. As the COVID-19 pandemic pushes us apart, BX will continue to bring our community closer together. 50 years ago today, on April 22nd, 1970, 20 million Americans rallied from coast to coast calling for a healthier and more sustainable planet. This collective action led to the creation of the Environmental Protection Agency, the passage of the Clean Air Act, the Clean Water Act, and the Endangered Species Act, profoundly improving the health of our planet and of our communities. More recently, in 2016, April 22nd marked the signing of the landmark Paris Agreement when the world's political leaders committed to meaningful climate action. And last year on Earth Day, the city of New York enacted among the most ambitious legislation to curb building-based carbon emissions of any city in the world, requiring a 40% reduction by 2030. It was just 10 years ago Building Energy Exchange was founded recognizing that only by providing trusted expert information and connecting the key stakeholders and decision makers could we create healthier and more efficient buildings. I'm proud to report that since 2010, we've hosted over a thousand programs at BX, attended by more than 27,000 building decision makers while creating hundreds of tools and resources and exhibits. Together, we can accomplish truly amazing things cleaner water, cleaner air, habitat protection, better buildings, better cities, and so much more. The success of Earth Day's promise and of New York's groundbreaking legislation will ultimately hinge on what we continue to do every day at the Building Energy Exchange, even virtually, bringing together citizens in good faith to collaborate on creating a better future. Later this year, we will celebrate the 10th anniversary of the Building Energy Exchange, and today we gratefully acknowledge the 50th anniversary of Earth Day and invite you to join us in creating the buildings of tomorrow. Be well and stay safe. And now, to kick things off this afternoon, I'd like to introduce my colleague, friend, and collaborator, BX's Managing Director of Programs and Strategy, 
And I think in his spare time, an inspiring DJ, Yatsa Frank. Yatsa? Thanks, Richard. Thanks. Um, I'm Yatsa Frank with the Building Energy Exchange. And as Richard said, this is Radio BX, our live interview and podcast series. We're so excited uh, to see the numbers piling up of attendees. We've got over 65 people I see um, signed up here right now, which is, which is great. Um, Richard's going to be uh, listening in as an attendee uh, from this uh, moment forward. And I've also got Will DiMaggio from BX here um, for tech support uh, as, we, as we do this. This series is something that we've been looking uh, to start at BX for several years. Uh, one of the core missions of BX, as Richard said, has been to create and foster what we've always called like a living room for uh, the energy efficiency conversation. And little did we know that um, now in the midst of the COVID-19 pandemic that our you know, our living rooms that actually become <laughs> uh, effectively our gathering spaces. It's no longer just a metaphor for us. Um, so we're working hard to migrate our existing programming uh, to remote platforms, but we're also looking for, you know, new ways to keep our community engaged and developing shorter, less cumbersome online activities. And I really hope Radio BX will play a strong role in advancing the sort of knowledge sharing that we all think is really critical to improving the performance of the built environment. And while COVID-19 is the broader context here, we really felt like Earth Day, especially the 50th anniversary of Earth Day was the perfect time to launch this series. So we're really, really glad um, to see everybody signing up. The goal of the series overall is to, is to simply feature leaders in our industry, the people that most impress us, the people that are both pushing the envelope by advancing policies, programs, and initiatives, as well as those folks that are responsible for real improvements at the level of individual buildings. Um, and for this inaugural episode, uh, the two people that we immediately thought of and that are doing both of these things um, were Sarah Neff, Senior Vice President Sustainability at Kilroy Realty Corporation, and Daniel Egan, Senior Vice President Energy and Sustainability at Vernado Realty Trust. Both Sarah and Dan have been absolutely instrumental in their company's really aggressive commitments to carbon neutral operations. But perhaps more importantly, they're both people that are just universally respected uh, across our industry. I hear nothing but good things from uh, my colleagues, their colleagues about their commitment to their work, about their collaboration with others. They're both sharers, um, which is something we can always use more of in our industry. Dan is also a very active member of the BX board of directors. And so in functional terms is one of my bosses, so I'll have to keep that in mind during our, our conversation. Uh, Sarah and Dan, welcome to Radio BX. Thank you so much. Thank you. So glad you're both here. Um, I just want to begin sort of recognizing the context we're operating in and just ask, you know, how you're all doing in this COVID-19 crisis. Have you been personally impacted? Are family and friends safe? Or has this crisis hit you really close to home in any way? Sure, I can start. I'm lucky to say that uh, family and friends are safe currently. We have, you know, sisters and brothers and of friends who are sick. I have a friend in New York who is sick and now better. Um, but yeah, immediate family is safe. The major impact on um, my life is just sheltering in place with uh, my full-time job, my husband's full-time job, and my two children, uh, five and seven-year-old girls, and also need to be homeschooled. Uh, all day. So uh, um, it's not been great for my productivity, um, but we are getting through it. Uh, we were able to publish our annual sustainability report in these conditions somehow, which is good. And uh, 
Yeah, so now we're trying to figure out what the um, COVID response is going to be for the built environment. And because people like Dan and myself were the first people to try to help our companies understand the connection between health and the built environment, which Dan has been doing for years as well as I have, um, now we're the people getting tapped to go figure out what um, the, that response should be. That's great. Yeah, I mean, uh, thankfully, we're, we're, uh, we're safe, we're, um, we're healthy. Um, I think uh, worth doing a shout out to our colleagues in the industry, many of whom themselves are essential employees. So several colleagues did have the, uh, have the virus, fortunately, um, none um, in critical condition, to my knowledge. Uh, but, you know, I think whether it's the property managers, the chief engineers, our vendors, our energy providers, uh, the utilities, you know, it's, it's really been magnified lately that so many of the folks in our inner circle are in fact essential employees and on the front line of this. So um, they're risking their lives to make sure that our buildings are safe and secure. Um, so I'm, I'm personally very thankful. Uh, my situation is in New Jersey um, at, my, at my house. Uh, I will say it's nice to get two to three hours of my life back every day without commuting. Um, most of that time is spent working. <laughs> uh, but um, this normal, as weird as it is, um, I think we've, we've stabilized, but uh, I'm eager to get back to the, the normal I once knew. Though I live in Los Angeles, so I'm actually one of those people with a very, very short commute. So I'm, uh, <laughs> I feel like it's good that I've had like a 15 minutes of my day returned to me, but um, I also am walking my kids to school. So yes, we've had that time as well. I mean, we also have tenants who are considered essential. And so we have tenants who haven't shut down in this time. And um, I haven't heard of any cases with them, but yeah, my hearts go out to everybody who's considered essential and is out there. Um, it is a strange world right now. Yeah, definitely. I mean, it is um, for those of us who are lucky enough not to be directly affected. It is um, very surreal um, to be in this sort of work at home environment when you know so many other people are kind of on the front lines of what must feel like a war zone. So uh, it's a challenging, challenging time. So um, thinking about both near-term and long-term, I think it would be great for our listeners if you could each provide a little context and sort of describe your company's position in the real estate market for those that don't know, sort of the where and what of your portfolios. Um, Dan, maybe you could start with that. Sure. Um, so Vornado is primarily a, a New York-based company. Uh, we own and manage about 25 million feet of primarily office and retail space in Manhattan. Uh, we do also own the Merchandise Mart building, a 4 million square foot um, where, uh, showroom to office converted um, mega building in Chicago, uh, as well as 555 California Street Complex, uh, formerly known as the Bank of America, of America Tower in San Francisco. So our perspective is um, very much dense urban core. It's tall, skinny buildings, um, and it's primarily from a square footage perspective, office with street retail um, at grade. So that's that kind of sums us up briefly. Great, great. And Sarah, how about Kilroy? Yeah, uh, we are an entirely West Coast real estate investment trust. So we own about 13.5 million square feet of assets from San Diego to Seattle. Again, like Dan, mostly class A office. There is some life science in there, uh, a bit of retail uh, supporting um, office and residential on mixed use campuses. So a bit of residential, a bit of retail, primarily office in life science. Uh, and again, really similar uh, dense urban core, tall, skinny buildings. We have a little bit of suburban, but less and less each year. Yeah. It seems. And do either of your, do your 
commercial tenants sort of tend towards uh, media and finance, tech and media? Like, so, you know, I, how, do, how does that sort of uh, lay out in your portfolios? Yeah. Our, our tenants run the full gamut. Um, I think our, we have a, a series of high profile um, tenants that are Fortune 100 companies, um, multinational corporations whose headquarters are in our buildings. Uh, they themselves as tenants are as much as four or 500,000 square feet. Um, so we, we sort of have buildings inside our buildings. Um, and those tenants uh, have you know, teams of facility managers at times they might have a, a peer of my own on their staff who oversees ESG. Um, and they come from a, a full assortment of industries. So tech, finance, uh, media. Um, we do have other buildings with, you know, whose characteristics are much smaller tenants. Uh, we have creative agencies, uh, we have medical offices. Uh, and so we are everybody, we are a slice of New York in a sense. Um, but I would say the, a, a, significant amount of our square footage is found in very large uh, corporate tenant spaces. So when it comes to um, rolling out a program across tenants, we can target a relatively uh, small number of tenants and cover a relatively large percentage of our square footage. Right. Yeah. And we serve, again, a wide variety of tenants, but there are a lot in the tech and media space, you know, Netflix, Microsoft, LinkedIn, um, those kind of folks. And then within the life science space, um, those are active uh, over there. So um, we have we have some tenants that are of the same size of, in, a, in a building that Dan has, but my largest building is around 800,000 square feet. Um, and so we don't have these, you know, so massive. We do have quite a few t- uh, single tenant spaces, um, but those are around 300,000 square feet-ish, right. less the, the stuff that we're building right now. Like Adobe took a 400,000 square foot building um, on their own, but um, we're still a, a quite a bit of multi-tenant in that portfolio. Yeah. Has Netflix recently called and asked to double their <laughs> corporate space <laughs> given the, <laughs> that's how we're uh, That is confidential, <laughs> but um, I get the impression, I yeah. nobody's told me that they're probably doing uh, well. They're doing these, fine, these I, I heard, yeah. Um, the only stock going up right now. Um <laughs> I mean, I think with, you know, I'm joking, but like, I think we're all sort of curious, both of you mentioned um, this a bit uh, when we were talking beforehand, but everyone's curious to see sort of what the near future holds. And I'm curious to know how you're approaching um, this period in terms of looking forward to when shelter in place recommendations are lifted and, and how you might be going about, you know, prioritizing how you're going to be preparing your buildings from when that happens and, and that sort of thing. Sarah? Maybe you could start. Sure. I mean, so everything is about differentiating between what is day one and day two. And everybody's very much scrambling uh, to figure out what that is, Um, especially when, you know, in a world where we need to be watching operating expenses and there's a whole lot of rumors and crazy things flying around of technology we could be putting in that may or may not do anything. So obviously we're trying to be smart about it. There's obviously a major focus on cleaning and janitorial, but also protecting our janitors. I mean, um, companies have been written up in the New York Times for not doing enough to protect their janitors when they're told to go clean offices that have, yeah. um, you know, known coronavirus exposure. So we're um, very sensitive to that. And then it's also trying to uh, be um, flexible with new flexibility. So we, we know the tenants are going to come back eventually, but we don't know yet how they're coming back. So we've heard that there'll be a lot of shift work both during the day to stagger people. So they're not these large bottlenecks of people going up and down elevators, um, but also throughout the week, 
Um, so we don't know what that's going to do to occupancy as well. Um, so that's a lot of day one stuff, which is um, a lot of what our asset management teams are focused on. Um, obviously, we're all working together. I'm primarily focused right now on what the impact is going to be on the development portfolio. Um, so we're developers as well. We have five-ish million square feet in development in every market. You know, how should those buildings change um, as a result? of coronavirus. So that's a lot of what I'm working on right now. And that's everything from the kind of audits you should be doing at the design plans to actual technology. Not surprising, a lot of it is focused on how on earth we open doors now, um, because that's a, that's an area of uh, major focus. What does the bathroom look like? Um, how do you keep people from getting bottlenecked in various places? Um, so that's where I'm spending a lot of my time uh, as we figure out how and when people want to come back. But we have tenants who are in there now. Yeah. Um, left. They were always considered essential, especially the life science folks. And so we're actually learning a lot from them and how they've been sort of dealing with it. So it's definitely a two-way street of communication. Yeah. Very similar situation at Vornado. Um, I think that we are, uh, I said, going into this call, I find it energizing to be focused on return to work. I think we've been longing for the next phase and understanding when that might happen and feeling good about preparing for it just means that something is changing. Some you know, vital indicators are moving in the right direction. Uh, New York City is very much the epicenter of the COVID storm and um, the highest, you know, highest number of infections by a long shot. So we are, we're thinking about all of those topics that Sarah mentioned. Um, I think just the notion of densification is one that has all new meaning now um, and understanding how we're supposed to guide and shepherd the thousands of tenants through our spaces safely um, whether that is physically safe or good for their mental health. I think that mental health is a big part of this game. Um, and I think managing the mental health of our occupants and our operators is going to be half the battle. So um, what the other piece that's interesting, you know, so while we're taking this pause, um, you know, I, I hope this is a once in a lifetime opportunity where we see virtual vacancy across our portfolio. Um, unlike uh, Sarah's building, we really almost have nobody in our buildings. Um, you know, there are essential staff, but they represent two or 3% of the population. Um, and so what does energy look like in a virtually vacant building? Um, I think before this uh, era, we kind of thought um, an empty building consumes no energy. Um, and what's interesting is during virtual vacancy, um, there are there is a sizable base load that needs to support the remote workforce. And that actually represents a higher amount of energy consumption than I think any of us would have assumed. So we've been working actively with our base of tenants um, to communicate to them on a weekly basis what their submetered energy consumption is and making them you know, aware of what the pattern is. So while you have no employees in the office, here's what's being consumed. Why does this look different than, you know, a Sunday, for example, why does why are you showing um, changes in your consumption patterns during the week if in fact nobody's there? So um, it's been a really um, informative conversation with many different tenants representing many different industries about what they're capable of, both in terms of their business as well as in terms of um, what they can control remotely. So I think when we come back to this, what I'd like to see is um, investment in remote automation and um, uh, a recommissioning, if you will, on all of those systems. I, I don't think they've ever been quite put to the test that they're being put to right now. Um, and so it'll be telling to see coming back to this of the energy we were able to reduce, 
what could we reduce per permanently and what could we reduce in part, especially if the returning workforce is going to be staggered and not complete overnight. Yeah, I agree. I'm seeing the same thing. So it's only certain tenants where people are still there. Mo I'm like in most of my portfolio is vacant right now. And to put some numbers to it, um, the reductions are somewhere in the 20 to 30 percent, not the 70 ish percent right. <laughs> we were thinking it would be. Because, you know, even if you have two people in the building, you're lighting most of their floor, you have to give them air, they're they're there. You, I mean, in like, unless your building is so zone controlled that you can only flip on a very small zone, even a few people forces you to turn on a lot. So I think a lot of those reductions are in plug load, frankly. Um, and then, you know, and obviously our occupancy sensors are working, but you know, one person walks through to, you know, clean a building or walks through and then all of a sudden the lights are on for another hour. So energy reductions have certainly been significant and it's going to be very strange when we try to do measurement and verification of all of our energy efficiency projects that we put in right before this happened. Uh, but uh, yeah, it's, it's been surprising that the impact hasn't been greater. That's really amazing. Um, and in a way we're just seeing, I mean, this has always been an issue with these sort of high intensity use buildings that, you know, you would ex you just don't have even in normal circumstances, the kind of diurnal swing that you might expect because you have companies that are in finance or media that are working in markets around the world. So mm -hmm. they have weird hours, you know, relative to your local time zone. And then you have cleaning and you have all these other activities and it just, the building just never shuts off. And now we're just seeing that, uh, you know, the kind of nay plus ultra <laughs> example of that with a totally empty building that's still um, pulling down a lot of energy. Um, so I guess, you know, in some ways it's a good segue to the real core subject of, of this conversation is that both of you, um, both of your organizations had made a commitment to um, carbon neutrality um, of your operations. And so I kind of want to pivot to sort of talking about those long-term plans and, and sort of um, the background for them. So, um, I mean, maybe Sarah, if you could start sort of, I'd love to hear sort of how you would go about describing your carbon neutral plan um, and, uh, and kind of where, you know, what that looks like for your company. Sure. So I want to be super clear that what I'm committed to is carbon neutral oper operations. So for you carbon nerds out there, that's scope one and scope two, <laughs> um, uh, carbon uh, neutrality um, have a lot of programs around scope three, but it'll be a long time before we're scope three carbon neutral. Um, and so the scope one and scope two carbon neutrality uh, is going to be achieved in three ways. Um, I feel bad Dan, to say this so many times, but it's um, on-site um, energy efficiency, on-site renewables, and then off-site installed renewables. So not carbon credits in our case, actual installed, in my case, solar um, off-site. So just to break down the numbers, um, you know, since 2010, we've reduced energy use um, about 17, 18%. Um, it's 17.3%. I just did my sustainability report. I just couldn't talk about it. 17.3%. And then uh, there's about you know, 2% uh, is coming from on-site renewable production. Um, so, you know, I'm like Dan, tall skinny buildings, it's hard to shove renewables into them. And then the remainder will be coming um, from the off-site uh, uh, power purchase agreement that we did, otherwise known as a virtual PPA or synthetic PPA. Um, and I just want to emphasize that the reason we structured it that way um, is because we really wanted to make a declaration that we we're going to get it done by the end of this year. Um, I think there's a lot of folks who are sort of hesitant. They say, wait, I have to be sort of 
done with on-site energy efficiency or done with putting in all the on-site renewables before I can look at off-site options. And my view has been, you know, climate change is very real, very happening. Obviously, you know, we need to be talking a lot about coronavirus right now, obviously, because that's most immediate. But um, we don't have time to wait around. Uh, we have to kind of get the greatest thing as possible as quickly as possible. So I'm a fan of doing everything all at once and not waiting. Um, so that's yeah. how we've approached it. And I think Dan and I can both thank um, the, the giants of the um, data center space who forged the path of real estate in the world of offsite renewables. I know I very much relied on the work that they had originally done um, to be able to meaningfully talk about uh, reducing their carbon footprints because it's not like you can just pick up a data center in Virginia and move it to Washington state um, and they draw a lot of energy. So, you know, solar is only going to be on-site solar only a tiny fraction. So what are they going to do? Um, and uh, a bunch of data center companies, um, Digital Realty, Iron Mountain, they pioneered how to become corporate off-takers of offsite renewables. And many of us have now followed their lead, which is great. That's great. And Dan, how about, uh, how about your plan? How does that look? Sure. Absolutely. Um, so I, I can, my hat is also off to Sarah. She's been, um, uh, fending off the carbon geeks for years now, and I'm just kind of getting, getting involved with them. Myself. Um, you know, I think that our portfolio, though it's geographically concentrated is, um, structurally, mechanically, architecturally very diverse. Um, and so our solution is not going to be one size fit all for all of our portfolio. And our solution is largely in response to the local conversations we're having with our regulators around uh, carbon emissions coming from our buildings and the regulatory framework that we've more recently found ourselves in, both in New York City and New York State. Um, we are prioritizing energy efficiency and demand reduction as items number one and number two. In fact, we have, as part of the carbon neutrality goal, we have an energy efficiency goal baked in there of 50% by 2030. And so um, that comes on the sort of on the shoulder, shall we say, of our existing energy efficiency goal. Um, so we were, we're about halfway there. We're at 24% since uh, 2009. So we're doubling down on that energy efficiency commitment for another 10 years um, because, you know, the the dialogue out there right now is so much about doing more with less and understanding that we have to reduce our absolute consumption in order for the surrounding infrastructure of the grid to support um, this new world of electrified buildings and green um, and green sourcing of our energy. So um, we're combining both energy efficiency with demand reduction that can come in the form of energy storage and certainly demand response and automation there. Um, we're leaving paths forward to electrify our buildings over time. Um, I can't say that we're radically, you know, retrofitting deeply all of the buildings uh, that are existing tomorrow. Um, but we look forward to having our portfolio being used as a series of case studies about what's possible um, and when in the city and state of New York. I think, um, you know, the challenges Vornado faces are the challenges that New York State faces with meeting many of the same goals. Um, and so, uh, one thing we are, you know, confident about it, uh, that we can foresee in the next 10 years is just getting rid of the remaining oil we have in our portfolio. So, um, so that was kind of a emboldening moment when we realized it's something that's not only achievable, but achievable in the short term future. Um, and just to echo Sarah's, Sarah's comment, I mean, the urgency of climate change is, is paramount. Um, I also think that the, uh, 
the regulatory discussion happening in New York and, and people rolling up their sleeves and looking at CMA and CLCPA and implementation, I think it causes a lot of um, folks to feel like they need to wait until certain implementation measures are known and rulemaking is done. And waiting is the opposite of what we want to do right now. So why not come out with, you know, some statements on what we want the end goal to be and, you know, make our path towards that goal something that's visible and transparent so that other folks can learn from the successes and challenges that we encounter over the next 10 years. So um, that's kind of where we are. It was an exciting announcement. You know, our we came up with this at the end of 2019, but waited until our ESG report was released also in the middle of all this uh, in early April. So um, we're uh, sort of at the um, for, for, you know, the beginning of this uh, path forward, um, certainly with a lot of progress under our belt already, but with a new narrative. Yeah. I mean, it, it was interesting when your commitment was announced, you know, we were sort of already in the midst of this right. sort of new COVID-19 pandemic and, and it uh, was pretty very clear that some form of recession is very likely. Um, and I have to say for the timing for me, it was like super encouraging <laughs> that you, you went forward with it because, you know, the fear is that companies are going to start stepping back from these types of commitments. Um, and it was great to, to see Vernado sort of push that forward. Um, you are just at the beginning of this um, sort of new path forward. Um, Sarah, your commitment, you know, was a little while ago. Is Has your perspective maybe changed at all with the passage of that little bit of time? Are there challenges that you hadn't expected? Are there allies you hadn't banked on? Yeah, um, it's harder to build a giant off-site solar array than I've been <laughs> expecting. So we're facing uh, some challenges there that haven't been anticipated, even though, you know, I'm the internal optimist, right? Nothing will go wrong. You'll sign the contract and then two years later, your solar shows up. So just working with the developer on trying to um, help them through that process. Um, but no, I mean, the thing that's been really heartening to me is seeing momentum. So is seeing um, other companies who, you know, the world would see as competitors, but we all do a lot of collaborating, make similar um, carbon neutrality commitments. I mean, outside of, you know, Bernier, there's others who have really done it. And so that's been really exciting. I mean, that's what you want. You also have people like the World GBC coming out with their commitment, trying to get more folks. So I've been, you know, one of the things that's been very frustrating, and I know Dan has felt the same thing, is, you know, we are farther behind than I'd hoped we'd be. Um, you know, I started at Killary in 2010, and I I only really felt like the momentum was really happening um, uh, in the environmental space where you had investors and media and, you know, tenants and everybody, all the players were finally in the room and finally talking. I feel like that's only been over the last two years when I really, that should have been five years ago at least. Yeah. Um, and so it's all feels like it's finally happening. And so in terms of allies, um, investors are talking to us about it. You know, ratings agencies call us up and want to talk to us about it. Um, they also want us to be pretty sophisticated on climate risk, which Dan very much is, and I'm trying to catch up to him. Um, but we are, uh, you know, there. it's part of a broader conversation, but I wasn't expecting the investors and the rating agencies. I was wondering when they would show up, and the answer is they have. So that's been very <laughs> Now they're here. Um, they're here. <laughs> was there something really specific about carbon neutral as a target um, that was appealing rather than, you know, some percentage of energy efficiency improvement mm -hmm. yeah. or Im improvements in Greb's score or, or some other uh, reporting mechanism? 
Yeah, I felt like carbon neutral or carbon neutral operations, very clear, um, is more of a lingua franca. So my goal has been not just to help Kilroy be more, you know, environmentally conscious, which has been my goal to reduce our environmental footprint. But it's also to do sort of two simultaneous things that have not been happening. One is to get real estate as an industry to realize that it's part of the global climate conversation. And then to get the global climate conversation to realize that it's got to include real estate. And that has been a slow process, even though real estate is a, depending on your report, a significant double-digit percentage of overall carbon emissions. And if you're counting things like concrete, which we use a lot of, you know, it's more. Um, and so, you know, over and over, whenever I step out of the real estate world and go to climate um, conferences, there's nobody for real estate. Um, it's infinitely frustrating. And similarly, in real estate, when you go to real estate conferences, there's sort of very few people from outside of folks um, that interact with real estate. And so the goal with something that was, I think, easier to grasp was to try to shove us into that conversation, speak the same language our tenants were speaking. Our tenants, Salesforce is a good example, um, has been making its own carbon neutral declarations for a long time. We're like, okay, we're going to follow those. We want our tenants to understand that we're speaking the same language there. Um, We made our announcement at the Global Climate Action Summit in 2018, where people flew in from all over the world to make their commitments. We're the only ones from American real estate. Um, There was a developer from uh, the Middle East who was there, but it was like, come on, like, (laughs) mm, there's all these much smaller impact industries being represented. And yet nobody thinks to invite, you know, the big developers, the big owners. I mean, we're a small owner, relatively speaking, Um, you know, we're midsize, it's fine. But so that's been frustrating. So, um, so that's why I decided, you know, Gresb is not understood, right, outside of our industry. Um, as much as that's very important to me and I'm working on my grad submission right now. Um, so I wanted, I really wanted to, to get real estate to the table and I thought that was a good way to do it. Yeah. G- great comments. I mean, I think that, um, carbon neutrality is something that a diverse group of stakeholders can understand and sort of glom onto. So much of what we talk about in our day to day and even the components of our carbon neutrality goal, um, depending on who you're speaking with, you can, they can get lost in the weeds or, or lose interest or it becomes sort of esoteric to them. I think between our investors, our boardroom, um, our tenants for sure, our employees, our, certainly our leadership, our executive team, you know, everyone can sort of get behind the notion of carbon neutrality and be bold in with statements that um, this is something Vornado is getting behind and, and driving forward to accomplish. So, you know, we can, I can sit and talk about energy efficiency. I can talk about, you know, um, the in carbon intensity of the electric grid and whether we're going right. to, which way the pendulum is going to swing between now and 2030. Um, and there's a, an appropriate time for that part of the discussion. But I think that, uh, you know, in order to have a universal message for this really broad group of stakeholders who very recently came to the table, this is like a great starter. And we can sort of pivot from there as to, which components they're concerned with, many of which are concerned about GRESB. But, um, you know, I think that this is a great umbrella term to um, to start every conversation and, and sort of include everyone's interests. I mean, obviously, your, your C-suites, your leadership are all totally on board with this because you've made public commitments uh, to it. Um, in the development of this idea to kind of pursue this fairly aggressive target, um, would you... Was it, was it, uh, asking both of you, um, was it more of like a top down sort of request to do something of this major nature or was it more sort of a bottom up? Like you realized you needed this to kind of push it forward with leadership or, 
how would you describe that sort of dynamic for people? I'm asking for people that are listening that might be kind of considering this kind of goal and, and how you go about sort of positioning your own leadership to soften them for something like this if, you, if they want to. Dan, do you want to go first? Or? Sure. Yeah. I mean, I think um, it's, it's always top down at our company. So our leadership is supportive of all of the work we do. They drive us forward to do our best. They want us ahead of all of these issues. Um, they want us to lead by example. Um, I think, you know, the last 18 to 24 months have been, I, I never thought I'd be as involved in policy as I am, you know, uh, yeah. as part of my job. Wow. So, yeah. um, you know, I'm spending so much time at the city, state and federal level looking at policy and how it impacts carbon uh, utilities in um, the built environment. And so I've been sort of a, a translator, if you will, to a, many different people as to the ins and outs of all these policies and how it's gonna impact real estate. And I think everyone, you know, as much as we may have spent a lot of time unpacking details of different bills and different uh, laws, um, I think everyone kind of understood that this was all headed in the same direction. So, um, you know, there are different iterations of carbon neutrality, um, but I think that everyone understood that this is the sort of obvious place where we need to end up. Um, and not just for regulatory reasons, but in response to what our investors are looking for, in response to the, you know, the climate crisis itself. Um, and so um, it was very much top down, but, I, you know, the curation of the details comes from, you know, yours truly, as well as, you know, my team at Fornado and the um, collaboration we have across the industry. So, um, you know, I have two or three more meetings on my calendar today that just will involve, you know, speaking with my peers at other real estate companies and just kind of checking in and seeing what everyone's working on. So, um, so it's, it's top down supported, but certainly um, more broadly curated, I should say. Yeah. Yeah, and since I would just reiterate everything Dan just said, um, I'll, I'll sort of uh, add uh, another level of sort of complexity that I think we're having. So very much, I got the directive in 2010. We want to we lead this parade. I don't want to just do sustainability. I want to check the box on sustainability. I want to lead on sustainability. You go figure out what that looks like, and you tell me. And that's been the relationship. And then when we ha when I have a truly zany idea, like we're going to do solar, which at the time was hard, <laughs> on-site batteries and carbon neutrality, you know, I'm, I bring that to the C-suite and we have to collaborate on it. What I'm seeing now is now we're building on each other. So now um, our board of directors has a corporate social responsibility and sustainability committee. Um, and so now I'm reporting them and then they're having ideas and now we're working together. And then um, even further than that, our uh, compensation committee of the board of directors then made um, ESG 15% of named executive officer compensation. So now we have to meet certain metrics, um, one of which is going to be getting to our uh, carbon neutral operations goal uh, for uh, next year's, get right, because we're not there, right? So uh, for, um, you know, to, to meet the, to meet the ESG factors and compensation, right? So we're, so it's one of these things where, okay, oh, we don't want to, you know, miss out on some sort of somebody's cash bonus because I didn't make it environmental. Um, you know, I didn't achieve an environmental objective. And so now, you know, I'm pushing them and they're pushing me and now I'm pushing them farther and they're pushing me. So it's now become this sort of great virtuous cycle. And I think that's what um, companies like Dan's and mine, you're seeing more and more of is more involvement, you know, yeah. from the, from top management. 
to uh, on the ESG side, especially as they get more pressure from investors and rating agencies and other um, NGOs and the, the broader stakeholder community. Yeah. When you both uh, laid out these plans, obviously you looked at your portfolio and mm-hmm. you're figuring out, okay, I, we have this target. This is what, these are the things we need to do to read, to meet it. What do you see? What did you see initially as like the major barrier or the major pain point to kind of achieving that goal for each of you? Dan, could you speak to that? Sure. Uh, you know, I think that, um, we are, we're in our, in New York, we're operating within this framework of the climate mobilization act. And so I think what we are struggling with is, um, carbon neutrality and commitments to that and compliance. You know, I don't, they're not one in the same. Um, and so we realize that the compliance discussion is going to be happening in parallel to our carbon neutrality goals. Um, they don't necessarily completely line up with one another in terms of steps towards completion. Um, I think that uh, what is, you know, what we're, what's challenging for New York is understanding um, how the grid that supports us, how the the state policy that sort of um, regulates the world around our buildings um, can interact with this new policy that regulates what we're doing within our buildings. And so um, creating a goal around that uh, was, you know, a true is a true challenge. I think um, we're going to be pivoting over the years, you know, somewhat in response to how the, um, what the progress of these, regulatory regimes look like, um, over the, over the same duration. Uh, but I would say, uh, in the same way, as I mentioned before, that motivated us to just get out here with this goal and say, you know, the path is winding, there's going to be obstacles. It's a discussion, but ultimately we all agree. This is where we want to end up at the end. Yeah. Sarah. Um, in terms of barriers, I think the barrier I saw was we're just not going to get there entirely on site. It's just not yeah. going to yeah. happen before the worst impacts of climate change. Yeah. It's just not. I mean, everybody would lo- loves to do case studies of net zero retrofit buildings. I love me a net zero retrofit study um, like, like, like the next girl, but um, it's not going to happen fast enough. And so I think that was the major barrier, which is why I was like, no, we really need to consider what else we can do to get to where we need to be. I will always do energy efficiency. Um, I took two energy efficiency pitches last night, gonna try to get them through the innovation lab. I'm Now is a great time for exterior lighting retrofits, right? Nobody's to go into your building and you're not gonna bother any tenants. We're doing that a lot right now. Um, so I don't wanna pretend that I'm just get to skip energy efficiency, but yeah, that was a major realization of like, this is, it's not all gonna happen. Yeah. Um, we right. the walls of my building as much as we would like to pretend. And also that, you know, I think Dan knows the story, but um, I was at the, uh, I won't say where I was, so it's harder to identify, but um, at a climate summit where somebody was talking about um, this net zero retrofit of a building and the, this highly trained engineer was saying, oh yes, and we put an 11 kW solar array on the roof. And I just had such a temper tantrum because I was like, you are all smart. I know how much work it is to put an 11 kW solar array. It's no less work than 100 kW. Right. It's all save interconnection, <laughs> structural and contracts and PPA and everything for, for you're going to run the lights to your mechanical rooms. Like we don't have the time um, to be spending for smart, highly educated, passionate people to be spending their time on stuff like that. We really got to focus on where the juice is worth the squeeze. Um, and so that was my major thing. 
Um, I was also asked to explain because I am an acronym person, which is a hard thing when you're wonky like Dan and me. So what ESG means, which is environmental, social, and governance. Um, so for us, Dan and I, I think are we were originally environmental folks. Now we're dealing with this world of health and social and social equity and workforce development. And then the G is the governance, which deals a lot with upper management and um, just, you know, in general, how our company is managed and how we make sure that everybody's being ethical and compliant. So just wanted to throw that out. Yeah, that's great. No, good clarification uh, for those of us who not aware of all the acronyms. Um, it's thinking a little bit about um, the tenant side of, of, of this. How does, how does pursuing carbon neutrality kind of impact your relationship with individual tenants and what kind of, what kind of things are you doing, programs, et cetera, or planning to do, Dan, that, um, to kind of pivot them to helping you reach this goal? Yeah, it's kind of my favorite part because a lot of other companies don't want anything to do with the tenants. And I'm like, let's talk to the tenants, let's get them in the room. Let's see what they can do with us. Um, so um, it's a, there are so many different opportunities to pursue with, with tenants. I mean, we are, we are fortunate in that our infrastructure supports a meaningful conversation with our tenants. And that's both how we're positioned in the organization. So my group rolls up to operations. My bosses are wonderful chief operating officer, Gaston Silva. Um, and we sit with the senior property managers in the same corporate office. We can act, you know, we can reach most of our property managers in person well, under different times in person on site. Um, but, uh, you know, so we have access to our tenants. Um, and the other piece is we have submeter data on our tenants. And so for, probably 15 years, we've had the majority of our portfolio submetered in real time, uh, consumption and demand, uh, the tenants, you know, that whole split incentive issue is not there with us. Um, so tenants can, you know, reap the financial benefits of whatever energy savings they can achieve in their space. So, you know, we are able to roll up our sleeves with them, focus on their electric bill and say, you know, we can kind of play auditor almost um, as the landlord and say, here's what we're seeing. Here's what your other tenants are doing. Um, perhaps you could try a few things out. Um, it's been a very meaningful conversation right now during COVID, but it, you know, I think it will be continuing um, in, terms of it, in terms of how meaningful it is going forward. Um, so we're, we're hoping that behavior of our tenants will change over time. But in addition to that, the design of our tenant spaces has to change over time. Um, code is driving a big piece of that. So we're seeing our newer tenant spaces operating at about 30% more efficient already than our older tenant spaces. And I think, you know, hats are off to the code committee in New York City for making a lot of that happen, as well as San Francisco, you know, Title 24 is, has a lot to do with that as well. Um, but we do think that, you know, furthering beyond the code, um, looking at a whole host of energy conservation measures that can be incorporated into the tenant space is going to be a necessity as part of our energy efficiency uh, goal itself. Um, and we also think that uh, we need to help make it more visible. Um, so tenants understand that a truly efficient space is one where you can still run business as usual. Um, it's not, you know, loaded with concessions and dark corridors and so forth. Um, so uh, we're part of that conversation. We have a lot of opportunities right now. We have a you know, the Penn District is undergoing a transformation as we speak um, with, you know, millions of square feet of tenant spaces rolling between now and 2030. So we're going to get ahead of that and um, have some, you know, best practices and ECMs that get baked into new tenant spaces going forward so that 
the tenant space actually contributes to this overall um, efficient, low-carbon building. Yeah, and I'll just build on that and say um, we're big believers in a green lease. Um, we've been um, part of the Green Lease Leaders program. You're part of the inaugural class of Green Lease Leaders um, run by the Institute of Market Transformation. Um, and that allows capital recovery, right? So I can do an energy retrofit in a building without, you know, to, to brass text to without clearing it with the tenant beforehand and still recover that capital. I see an opportunity for lighting retrofit and do that and recover the, um, the capital over a payback period so the tenant isn't, um, is neutral financially on it until it's paid off and then they get the lower energy bill. Um, and so that is a major driver of what we're able to do. And then we built on the green lease. So we've always had cost recovery. I can't take no credit for that. That was some hill somebody died on in the eighties. Um, and then it's been in every lease since then. And then we built on that with more essentially protections, right? So we want our tenants to have to participate. If I'm going to do a lead certification, you're going to answer the survey. If I have an energy efficiency program, I want you participating green cleaning. I need you to be recycling. The whole building doesn't get fined if a tenant, if a particular tenant isn't, is contaminating the recycling, we're going to figure out who it is and put the fine on that person or company. So that's been, um, so the, I think the green lease is really, really important. And also uh, our sustainability report, just like Dan's just came out, we have a whole tenant engagement page, which you can check out. Um, but I think one of the other important things is just, I have a very buckshot approach to communication. So we're tweeting all the time at our tenants. We have a tenant memo going out um, to all the tenants all the time. We are, um, if you know a tenant wants to do solar and they can't do it for their own tax reasons, I'll figure that out for them. That's happened twice. So we're, it's kind of, I'll do anything. Anytime yeah. a tenant wants to do anything, I'm, I'm, I'm open for business because as Dan said, you know, for a lot of real estate, it's, it's, they're hard to reach. So like Dan, I'm lucky that I have more access than most, but getting that access is still pretty tricky. In fact, our, I think our best relationships are those where we know the ESG person on the tenant side, and then we can communicate as opposed to like 800 layers between the two. Yeah. Um, I just had this happen where um, I was applying for green lease leaders and my counterpart at this tenant wanted to do it. And yet, you know, then legal got involved and everybody got weird about it. And then it needed to just be us talking at the end. So <laughs> getting to the right person at the tenant um, is, is always a, a challenge. That's great. Well, we've covered a lot of ground um, and, uh, and I think our time is, is essentially up here. I want to thank so much Dan and Sarah for participating in what I found to be a really great, really illuminating conversation. I want to thank Richard Yancey for his opening remarks and thanks, uh, you know, all of our listeners for, for tuning in. Um, we will be announcing more of these Radio BX episodes imminently. I think the next one's even going to be on May 7th. Um, so thank you all very much for participating. Um, happy 50th Earth Day to everyone. Happy 50th Earth Day. Happy and, 50th um, Day. Yeah. Stay, stay safe out there, everybody. Yeah, be well, <laughs> Take everybody. Care. Thank you so much. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye.